2: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 55 is something like, What is linguistic meaning? And we read Ludwig Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations, Part 1, Sections 1 through 133 and 192 through 360. These were completed around 1946, published in 1953. For more information on this episode and discussion that you can participate in, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, speaking to you from Madison, Wisconsin.
3: This is Seth Paskin
2: in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin.
3: This is philosophybro.com from
4: an undisclosed location.
2: You're not even saying your name is Philosophy Bro. You're, you're, you're introducing yourself as a URL. You are a location. <laughs> in the intranets. <laughs> can I not plug
4: the site on the podcast? Is that...
2: Yeah, no, you can plug all you want. In fact, I think every time before you speak, you should say, Hi, this is philosophybro.com. <laughs> And then <laughs> then the talk.
4: My, my uncle, Kim.com, ran into a bit of legal trouble, so we're trying to not
2: advertise being the dot-coms. So, yes, Mr. Bro... Just bro is fine. We had run over across your website at some point. You write hilarious descriptions of philosophers, summaries uh, of books, things like that. Their
4: summaries is probably the best way to put it. Their summaries slash translations, I guess, since I usually write them in the voice of... Whomever the author is, or from his perspective, they're probably best characterized as translations. But yeah.
2: All right. And you're actually some kind of academic professional, and you do not want to reveal your secret internet identity. Right. Or rather, the internet identity is the real identity, and the real one is the secret one. Which is it?
4: You know, it depends on the day, I guess. Some days I wake up, and I'm like, today is a philosophy bro kind of day. And then other days I wake up, and I'm like, no, it's the other one. Whoever he is.
0: So this activity isn't part of your tenure packet?
4: I can't say that it is, no. Could you imagine if it came down to that? Like, well, it's close, but if only he'd written more summaries online. <laughs> Little note of fact, that's what pushed Edmund Gettier right over the edge.
2: So having internet anonymity means you can swear a lot. And is that the chief what is the chief benefit of this as opposed to just coming clean?
4: Yeah, I think that's it. But I think the real benefit is that it sort of preserves my... It doesn't let my worldview cloud the summaries, right? Like, I've got some very strong opinions about controversial questions, and I don't care at all about other questions. But I want this size material to stand on its own. I've written about Nietzsche and Thomas Aquinas and David Hume on Miracles. And with respect to religion in particular, I'm worried that if my particular views on religion were well known, it would cloud those summaries, all of which have been really well received. So this allows me to like let my work stand on its own without having to defend my background floating in there.
0: So in the future, when your works are collected in a large volume, we can look forward to you being deconstructed based upon your found biography.
4: Yeah, I would be thrilled to see a deconstruction that <laughs> takes into account my normal writing and this writing. That would be fascinating. And I think, I hope that like the Irish, I can't be psychoanalyzed, but that's probably not true.
2: Well, you had harassed us a bit about not having enough analytic philosophy on the podcast. And though we get more requests for continental folks and the line is ever lengthening. What are you doing to lose? What are you doing? You know, more literary theory and things like that. But there is a vocal minority that thinks we should do more analytic stuff. So we, about a year ago, decided to do pretty much our next analytic one with you, as that is your area of specialty, correct?
4: Yeah. I was taught in the Anglo analytic tradition. And that's where I'm much more comfortable. One of the best things, it turns out, about doing this philosophy bro project is it's really widened my exposure and given me an excuse to get involved with some really cool stuff. I'm really happy with my Hegel. I did a thing on lordship and bondage. And to sort of cast aside the assumption that I think a lot of analytic departments have that Continental is, like, wordy bullshit and really, like, wrestle with that and see something coming out of it. it has been really cool. And it's really opened up my range, I think.
2: Excellent. Yeah, actually, that's one of the reasons I think that we do so many continental things ourselves is because I don't know about the rest of you guys, but that's even though I did stuff in that area, certainly a lot of the contemporary folks are new and adventurous to me as well.
4: Yeah, it's unfamiliar to a lot of people. And I think there's an argument to be made that critical theory in particular, but a lot of more recent continentalists sort of abandoned the ordinary reader. And you need a much deeper background in the literature than you need in analytics. With analytic, you need to be able to think in particular ways and you need to really be ready to spend a lot of time with the text. But in continental, there's much more background I think you need to be able to have. You can't just jump into Zizek and expect to pick up Hegel through that text.
3: That's a true statement. Hmm.
2: Just for the newbie listener who is confused at this point... So there's been a division, at least in the 20th century, between pretty much English and American, which is the analytic tradition, which is all we're going to write very clearly and maybe include logical symbols and sound like we're doing math, as opposed to the continental tradition, which is the continent, because, of course, Europe is the only continent that there is. (laughs) So mostly French and German guys who like to write in one sentence that takes up an entire page. These guys have their roots in. It's really Kant, kind of could be considered either one, but definitely set the stylistic precedent for uh, the Continental School. Whereas analytic is more like uh, Bertrand Russell and following in this more in this closely in the steps of Locke and Hume and folks like that.
4: Derek Parfit actually has a hilarious thing, hilarious to philosophers, in the introduction of his most recent On What Matters, where he says something like Kant is the reason it's okay to be a bad writer as a philosopher because now you can't say. You have to write clearly. If you're going to be a great philosopher, you can point to Kant because he was a bad writer.
2: What you're going to forgive historically, you know, the fact that Nietzsche is fun to read, even though he was sort of very sloppy scribbling on notebooks and the one philosophical investigations, like it can still be a brilliant book, but it's still not a model for what you in the present day should do. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Do not try to write like this.
0: When I was an undergrad in my class on Nietzsche. I wrote my last paper aphoristically. <laughs> the first thing that my professor commented on was that Nietzsche gets to write aphoristically.
4: <laughs> I remember being told something similar about starting sentences with conjunctions. Like, Emily Dickinson, she gets to start sentences with conjunctions, and Bertrand Russell can have silly footnotes. But for now, focus up.
2: Right. And it's not about having low self-esteem as a modern person. You would like even your geniuses of today to write in an accessible way to maximize the utility of what they have to say and avoid a lot of needless squabbling. But at the same time, you could imagine that for every Nietzsche or Wittgenstein or whoever sloppy or quick or poor writers of the past, there are many, many, many other less talented people who wrote in the same way that you will never hear about now.
0: Well, but there's also a kind of cultishness that arises around people who write very idiosyncratically. And even if, as you pointed out, some of them might be fun to read, there are plenty of cases where people kind of wallow in the difficulty of this other person's writing as a kind of virtue, that it's a sign of their brilliance that they write this terribly. (laughs) And that's something I find extremely irritating.
3: Well, you know what else people do is that they trumpet their own ignorance and unwillingness to try to interpret something as indicative of the opacity of the writing of the other person. So just where claiming that a lack of clarity is a virtue is bad, Mm -hmm. so is proudly proclaiming that you're too stupid or lazy to understand something, uh, which is the, the opposite side of that coin, which is what I see a lot.
4: Well, you guys really have been doing a lot of continental, huh?
3: <laughs> no, I just say this because I find it's a rhetorical device that there's a kind of a smug academic attitude where they'll say like I couldn't understand it it just it's meaningless. I'm like okay, well, how much of an effort did you make how charitable is that? Because I would certainly take the same effort to try to understand what somebody's saying regardless of what style they were writing in. And by the same token, I could say pull any article on the philosophy of mind out of the journal of the APA for the last 10 years that was so painstakingly clear that it had nothing to say and make an opposite claim that clarity is no virtue if you say nothing of meaning. Better a big failure in my book than a small success, I guess.
4: Certainly, Vickenside went for the former and not the
2: latter.
3: That is true. Well, let's uh, get going on. Who wants to give the
2: uh, one-minute summary of the book? What the hell is going on here?
4: <laughs> yeah, I can try that. I guess this is my specialty, probably. So this text has like rebuffed me like a dozen times trying to summarize it. But I think, in short, what Wittgenstein is doing in the first part that we read is he's building ever more complex pictures of language and dismissing them. He starts with, like, oh, words attached to things, but that, like, think of all the kinds of things there are. Okay, so words attach to things in different ways, but think of all the different ways that they could attach. So that's not clear enough. And he just dismisses bigger and bigger pictures of language until he gets to the point where he says, and so there is no, like, single essence of language single view that encompasses all of language. is not that simple. And then in the second section, so the private language argument, it's weird because I don't think private language was a big topic until he brought it up. I don't think it was a thing, but he's saying something like language is a public cultural thing that develops among people who agree to play a game in a particular way and you can't make up your own language. That's not how it works. Words get meaning among cultures of speakers and not Because some individual decides this word is going to mean this thing, and that's it for me.
2: The concern with private language its not like people were arguing for there being private languages. It seems like a pretty silly thing to even think about. But he thought that it follows from this traditional account of meaning, which is something that he himself had ascribed to in his earlier book, the Tractatus, or at least something like that, which founds meaning on ostention, right? Which is pointing out something and saying a word. That's that thing. Oh, okay. Well, once you point to enough things, then you've got a language. And so it would seem then that there are personal experiences that we have that can't you then point to that? So if you get hurt and you feel a pain, can't you kind of to yourself point to that pain and say, pain? And in fact, what you mean by pain, since it refers to that private thing of yours, maybe that's different than what I mean by pain and what somebody else means by pain. Because if language is built on ostention, ultimately, then you run into these problems about knowing what other people are talking about. At least in outline, I don't know that I have a problem with there being that problem. That That's part of the despair of art. Yeah, is that we can never, we're all separated. We're all cold and alone and separated from each other by this existential void. Why wouldn't we think that some of our experience and the things that we talk about should reflect that? Well, but is that what
0: Wittgenstein is? He's not claiming that there aren't subjective experience. He's claiming there's no such thing as subjective language. Correct. I think that's an important distinction, that you can have your own pain, but articulating it in
1: terms of language. He seems to talk at some points as if the idea of having one's own pain is nonsensical.
0: He doesn't seem to go as far as saying that there's no such thing as private sensation. He'd make the distinction between private language as a game that has rules, and all he means by game is that there are rules that are being followed. So there are
4: expectations involved. Is unique a better word than private with respect to sensation. So he's not saying, like, your pain has to be public, but he's saying something yeah, like... Yeah,
1: I think unique helps. Um...
4: Your pain isn't special. There's nothing about your pain that only you can access or that sets it apart from all other pain. Pain is pain. And even though you're the only one who feels pain at this moment, it's like you're not the only one who feels pain or feels it in the way you feel it.
0: Would he really deny that the sensation itself is unique and that there's a distinction between communicating what that sensation is to others as opposed to, let's just say something like seeing. It seems like he wouldn't deny that the photons that reflect off the wall and enter my eye are somehow unique to me in the sense of being a particular event. Right. What makes them articulable in language is the way that that then gets extrapolated. And he would deny that
1: I would have a unique private language to describe those sensations. But he seems also to be saying that sensations can't be thought of as unique individuals that can be named. Have we explained really what his argument against private language is?
2: No, and it would be good to maybe present it in the context of, (laughs) unless you just think it is isolatable... I saw a progression should here. Should we start from the beginning? Yeah, because we'll get
0: to language games then. Should we back up and then come back yes. to private language?
2: I don't think we can do that without
3: Seth telling us to. <laughs> can we please get back to the text? <laughs> I think we should slow down. <laughs> back to the beginning. There's a few basic ideas we need to get on the table before we can jump to that. How's that I think that's Thank you.
4: <laughs> so... When a mom and a dad love each other very much. How far back are we going?
1: (laughs) 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 Yes, let's start there. (laughs)
4: Okay.
2: Before we start, do you want me to preserve your anonymity to take your entire vocal track and put it through one of those, like, uh, witness protection (laughs) phone adapter so you kind of sound like this? You have to make him sound like Daffy Duck. That
4: would be terrible. That would be hilarious. I I mean, I probably not. I can't imagine the complaints you'd get as a result of that. (laughs) I actually had the experience not long ago, maybe three months ago, someone who doesn't know that I write Philosophy Bro recommended Philosophy Bro to me. And that was like a big moment. (laughs) Yes, that felt great. I was like, oh, is he funny? I don't know.
0: It's
2: like somebody telling Peter Parker how great Spider-Man is.
4: Right, exactly.
2: (laughs) Well, I think you would have to then write your own blog encounter to philosophy, bro.
4: Right? Who is this asshole who thinks he knows about (laughs) philosophy and
3: just run up the uh, the drama between us? No, I think what you (laughs) is you'd have to constantly be taking yourself to task for not being serious. How can you be so flippant and use such foul language about such important things? I'm sure you get plenty of comments like that.
4: You know, I get fewer than I thought I would get. Someone who does. Heidegger expressed that my Heidegger post was sort of nonsense and there's no real value in what I do. But that was like one negative opinion. And I've heard from a lot more people who really enjoy what I do, even at the like super tenure position, like even the like endowed chairs, I've heard from a couple people who have those that are like, this is super good. So that feels really good.
2: All right. So the beginning of the investigations, we have referred to, you know, it's not just this basing meaning on ostention, but also the notion that goes back to Plato of what a definition is supposed to be of what, right? If you understand a specific word, well, you understand the name, right? It's just the name for a thing. That's the ostention. But if you understand a concept... A concept is identifiable on this old Wittgenstein and Russell syntax as a set of objects, right? So if I understand what blue is, that means that I could, not that I can name all the blue objects right now, but I could identify for any given thing whether it's going to fall into that category or not. So the way that that was interpreted historically is that you need for any given concept a set of necessary and sufficient conditions to understand it, right? Mm -hmm. All the things that meet these conditions will fall into the category, and uh, if it doesn't have these other conditions, it definitely won't fall into the category. And if you've specified that, that's the definition. And so we have Plato having Socrates say, hey, stop just naming examples of justice or whatever. I want you to give me the meat of the matter. Give me the actual definition. And this was made very explicit in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions in Aristotle. Is that right? That he actually used that terminology, or am I imposing that? Necessary and sufficient? Yes,
4: that sounds right, but I can't say for
2: sure. That is at least the made-up thing that I will assume that from my
1: okay. long-ago memory. This is an account of meaning, though, right, that's common to Plato and Russell and early Wittgenstein. Yes. Although early Wittgenstein is a little more radical about it, and that's the idea that ultimately meaning comes from naming, from reference. Mm-hmm. So to kind of summarize, the early Wittgenstein, the Tractatus... You could take any proposition and ultimately decompose it into these ultimate atomic propositions where you have basically just proper names. So they're predicating something. So you will have a basic name standing for an individual or referring to an individual and then a concept term or a general term which refers to a universal. And that's the account of meaning which Wittgenstein is now going to reject here. And then ultimately with the Tractatus, with the picture theory, you get this sort of, it's not like a proposition as a whole refers to a fact or a state of affairs in the world, but it does have a reference-like relationship. And that's this picturing relationship where it's this isomorphism or structural similarity between the proposition and the relations between its elements, the names. So that structure is similar to the relationship between what's named And that's how you get a theory of meaning for propositions as a whole.
2: Yeah, folks who found that confusing should just go back and listen to our (laughs) two Tractatus episodes that we did long ago. However, maybe there is something in our interpretation there or a relevant summarial fact that you want to throw in, bro, or Dylan, who is not with us. It's really interesting that
4: Wittgenstein is coming from as radical a reference view as you can get. And there are points in the text where he like, so sometimes he refers to it like, oh, yeah, my earlier work, the Tractatus, that was stupid. But other times he refers to himself in the third person like, that asshole who wrote the Tractatus, that guy had no idea <laughs> what he was talking about.
2: Well, and usually he, when he's objecting of you, he just says something and he puts it in quotes. Right. But isn't a language just a picture of the facts? And then he goes out of quotes. No, you
4: asshole. <laughs> what a ridiculous idea, guy. <laughs> who is me? Yeah, that sounds right. Have you? I don't know where I read this. It might be an apocryphal story. It might be a super well-known story. One of the earliest things that sort of shook Wittgenstein out of that positivist slumber was G.E. Moore gave him a really, really obscene gesture. He was like, what's the logical form of this? And I like, gave him the finger or something <laughs> equivalent. And Wittgenstein like, stormed out of the room angry because he didn't know and then realized like, oh that still communicated meaning to me like he was clearly telling me to fuck off even though that doesn't refer the way you'd think how strange and then that set him on the path to since we all know what that gesture means had you heard that before
3: i hadn't heard that that's great no although i was terrified that you would bring up ge more i don't know what that would set mark off let's just
1: make sure we don't discuss (laughs) ge more in any any detail Ever, ever again. Yeah,
4: no, that's completely yeah. forgotten. Are we, are we not GE more fans? My bad.
2: It's fine. <laughs> Somebody recommended that we read one of his uh, essays on common sense, which I opened before this but did not look in any detail about. Maybe there's more specific things we can get into that he's reacting to besides his own picture theory. One more thing to
1: say is that the place of rules in the Tractatus, right? The only rules you're dealing
2: with are the
1: rules of the logical calculus where you. At these the ways in which the truths of certain complex propositions are related to the truths of their parts so of course that's where you you know if someone gives you the finger
3: <laughs>
1: the rules that work there which are semantically important are not simply logic right. and that's really the problem as brilliant as it
0: is there's a way in which i feel like it's just sort of a dumbass idea in the first place i don't really understand how the tractatus and that idea of one-to-one correspondence you know atomistic language survived at all i don't even get it this is after we already knew that there were multiple versions of geometry that didn't correspond to one another this is right around the time of godel's incompleteness theorem even with respect to arithmetic and the notion that now all of a sudden there's aspect in the world even with the weaknesses in philosophical investigations the notion that it's a reaction to the Trectatus feels like he wrote a straw man in the first place in order to react against it. I know that's not what happened, right? And maybe somebody can try to convince me how utterly brilliant it is, even if it's misguided. But it sounds, my reaction to it is, this is immediately completely crazy. <laughs> it misses absolutely prima facie notions about the world that are right in front of you, staring you in the face.
2: To be fair, it's not supposed to be an account of the way language actually is now. So you would not have to account for the obscene gesture, etc. It's supposed to that if you're actually trying to get at what the informational content of language is, and that's how really you figure out what is being said and what can legitimately be said. Right. So, the, a lot of philosophy he's going to dismiss as nonsense because it really can't be put in this logically precise form. Yeah. So, ethics means nothing, right? And that kind of thing. Yeah. That's fine. Right. That's fine. Yeah. But it fueled the drive in Carnap and these other guys to try to create a logically correct symbolic language that would be superior to our ordinary roughshod, silly way, which is exactly the thing that he's now in investigations, which is completely turned around from. And if there's any sort of big influence from the investigation, it's to, I don't know if he started or maybe he just was concurrent with a trend toward ordinary language analysis. Yeah, I
1: don't think the Tractatus, though, is as weak as it looks on first blush, because it's dealing with some very specific problems, I think, in a way that is kind of genius. I mean, the whole picture theory, you know, some of the problems that we discussed with Frege, trying to figure out how to think about the relationship between these sentences, let's say, and and the world. It's a very difficult problem to even begin thinking about, right? It's sort of crazy in and of itself to try and think about the way language relates to the world. So the idea of that isomorphism, the idea of these internal relations that can be in both language and the world is kind of neat when you get down to it.
0: I don't mean to indict it as being, I guess what I find surprising is the notion that you would be surprised that the Tractatus is a mere beginning. He surely was aware that Euclidean geometry had ceased to be the only possible geometry. And in fact, there are a huge multitude of geometries
1: how is geometry relevant right? You're going
0: to have to sketch that out yeah, a little,
4: little. I think more than one geometry is fine.
0: Yeah. I guess I'm maybe picking geometry as opposed to arithmetic or something.
2: In other words, that there's supposed to be a unique set of true propositions that yes basically describe the world. And that's what the picture theory should entail. That's yeah
0: Yeah. I'm not an expert on the Tractatus or anything like that. And I haven't spent hours sweating over that book. My reaction is more to this presentation that. Wittgenstein was utterly convinced of the Tractatus. And then he made a turn and has now the philosophical investigations in which it dawned on him that there was aspect in the world. And while granting the utility and the, in fact, the difficulty of doing the exercise in the Tractatus, it seems to me that it would be a plain beginning. Now, this might be a partly historical issue that, you know, we're in the grip of logical positivism and so forth and so on. And I find logical positivism, prima facie, just crazy, that you would say that that is the beginning and the end. I find nothing about it convincing. And that might be
4: part of my problem. (laughs) So I think that's probably the right way to look at it. I think that the Tractatus is like probably the best and a really remarkable expression of a view that we now know is so wrong. Ever since Quine turned the verifiability criterion back on itself, they're like, how do you know that only things you can verify are true. Can you verify that? And everyone's like, oh, right, okay, internally incoherent, got it. But when logical positivism was big, Wittgenstein was the best at it. And that's probably why that work is so revered. I don't think anyone takes the track as seriously now as, like, probably true. It's more like, look at how well-developed this view was before we realized it was wrong. This was really good. They worked really hard to make this work, but couldn't.
3: Dylan, I would say this too. I mean, my kind of aesthetic experience with Wittgenstein is love and hate. <laughs> He's a tremendously frustrating person to read in both his early and his later forms. And one thing I can say is I do remember that I think all of us, when we did the discussion of the Tractatus, got quite a bit out of the text, even if ultimately it's not this the answer to whatever question was being posed it was tremendously thoughtful and sort of thought-provoking. If it hadn't been, if we'd spent all that time on it and it just was nonsensical or whatever, then I would have been really frustrated. And there are times with Wittgenstein that I feel that way. And just like either this guy's saying something immensely profound or he's the most naive idiot who ever got you know <laughs> treated with such praise and honor. That's kind of the tension I feel in what he's saying. And I feel partially because he's been canonized, that there must be something more when I hit that point where I'm like, really? Is this like you're just stumbling upon what every child knows? There must be something more to it. And I have a tendency to give him more leeway than I think I would other people. But there's always that tension present.
4: It's what Socrates took himself to be doing too, just sort of unlearning all of his mistakes. Well, one
3: of the things that is refreshing about
0: Wittgenstein is the way in which he's engaging in those childlike questions and trying to sort it out from the beginning. And I really do like that. He very rarely refers to anybody else, (laughs) which I like
3: about it. And yet the book starts off with a nice juicy quote from Augustine. (laughs) That's true. By the way, I was talking about this podcast, what we were going to do with my girlfriend who has no formal philosophical training. And when I asked her to describe how she learned the like words for things and how she learned. She literally almost like word for word gave Augustine's account. I'll read it since you're referring to it.
2: Okay. I'm not going to read. I'll re- just read Yeah, the Please Latin. read it just in no, Latin. No, the listeners will. No. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I assume uh, the okay. listener can translate for himself. That's- <laughs> yeah.
2: When they, my elders named some object and accordingly moved towards something. I saw this and I grasped that the thing was called by the sound they uttered when they meant to point it out. Their intention was shown by their bodily movements, as it were the natural language of all peoples, the expression of the face, the play of the eyes, the movement of other parts of the body, and the tone of voice, which expresses our state of mind in seeking, having, rejecting, or avoiding something. Thus, as I heard words repeatedly used in their proper places in various sentences, I gradually learned to understand what objects they signified, and after I had trained my mouth to form these signs, I used them to express my own desires. So what could be wrong with that?
0: Maybe we could say what is the revision of that that Wittgenstein gives?:
4: I think what he says is something like, if we want to say that like names attach to things, the variety of things that there is means that attach" means something completely different for like verbs and numbers and apples. To say that the word "red" attaches itself to a color is something completely different from saying the word "apple" attaches itself to that thing. So we have to rethink what kinds of words there are and what those words do. We can't just say like, yep, they hook right in.
0: Even if you kept all the words that Augustine says, it's not that you know, kind of Adam out in the world naming the things of the world and every child is a child of Adam. Rather, the thing that the child is learning are the rules for that correspondence and not the names.
1: Rules in the sense of the ways in which the words can be used, sure. right? So if, you, if I taught someone what a slab was, and <laughs> if I could do that in the ostensive way or and say, here it is, and the idea there is that the meaning of the word is just this, whether it's an image or something like an image of a slab that I bring up before my mind, that wouldn't really tell me everything I knew about how to use that word. So you can look at the
2: first language game he creates, which is simple. Shall I read it? This is from section two. Let us imagine a language for which the description given by Augustine is right. The language is meant to serve for communication between a builder A and an assistant B. A is building with building stones. There are blocks, pillars, slabs, and beams. B has to pass the stones, and that in the order in which A needs them. For this purpose, they use a language consisting of the words block, pillar, slab, beam. A calls them out... He brings the stone which he has learnt to bring at such and such a call. Conceive this as a complete primitive language.
1: This is a sneaky example that he gives because on the one hand, he acts like the description given by Augustine is right, but the description given by Augustine won't be right for this because what's going on is essentially commands. Mm -hmm. He calls them out and then someone brings him something. To set up an example where Augustine is right, the game would have to be, I call out something and then you imagine that in your head or something like that. So it's interesting that he's setting this up as a game in which it's simple enough that Augustine might be right, but of course, Augustine
2: isn't right. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a personally examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.